We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. These are conservative scholars, I should add, who are active members of the Federalist Society and proponents of originalism, the method of interpretation that seeks to determine the Constitution's original meaning. One of those professors, William Boddy, summarized their conclusion saying, Donald Trump cannot be president, cannot run for president, cannot become president, cannot hold office unless two-thirds of Congress decides to grant him amnesty for his conduct on January 6th. A few days ago, I received a text from a friend of mine who wanted my assessment. Love it when people say that. Dave, what's your assessment of the situation? He was specifically referring to an article that had run in the Atlantic magazine, a website magazine that you can subscribe to. The particular article titled, The Constitution Prohibits Trump from Ever Being President Again. Subtitle, The the Only Question is Whether American Citizens Today Can Uphold That Commitment. The article is behind a paywall. If you subscribe to The Atlantic, you won't be able to read it. And for the record, I do not. However, there are a number of blog posts and articles out there about the article itself talking about what it says and in addition to that there are numerous other articles that you can find google trump 14th amendment will find the same argument repeated many times over so it's not really that difficult to find the article person who texted me who not be surprised to learn was roderick wanted to know what I thought about this, this idea. Can the 14th Amendment, specifically Section 3, actually ban President Trump from running for president? Well, yes, if you're going to start, got to start at the beginning. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. Amendment 14, Section 3. Now, the thing to keep in mind here contextually is that the 14th Amendment is what is is one of what are known as the Reconstruction Amendments. These are amendments that were passed at the end of and in the wake of the American Civil War that were designed to ensure that the war aims of Abraham Lincoln and the Union were met. So 
despite the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment was passed to permanently end slavery in the United States. The 15th Amendment gave former slaves the right to vote. And of course, it's this 14th Amendment that is so problematic. This 14th Amendment is very broad, very, very broad. And in fact, many of the states, including the state of California, refused to ratify it because they thought that they saw things in the 14th Amendment that are outside the bounds of this conversation that eviscerated the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. The professor law Gale, Gail Lamar says, it essentially created a new constitution. The Fourteenth Amendment is very broad, but it also contains that Section 3. It's red. Congress was very concerned about people from the Confederacy the leadership of the Confederacy, gaining power and authority in the federal government and essentially undoing everything that had been done. Now, lest you think that that was an unrealistic fear, well, see the section we did on 1876's election. It certainly was the goal of many from the former Confederacy to undo many of, as many of those things as they possibly could. But here's the problem. The right of the amendment in 1868, ratified in 1868, you force its passage, its full ratification, by compelling states that were former Confederate states to ratify it or they don't get to come back. Whereas states like California didn't ratify it until 1950. What they saw with the problems with it. You force this thing through and Subsequent events are going to cause a great deal of issues with it. But the biggest issue you have is, can you literally apply this text? And we are speaking specifically of Section 3, not of the entire amendment, but specifically of Section 3. Since that was intended to and did apply specifically to former Confederates, can it be applied today? That's the real question, isn't it? What is What has been the interpretation of that, and what have we done along the way? Now, of course, most of us are familiar with the events of January 6th, which is the leading cause of all this theory. Now, I don't want to rehash all of January 6th. That's not what I'm going to do here. The understanding of that should be that it led to the second impeachment of President Trump. Articles of impeachment, of impeachment stated specifically that President Trump's conduct on the day followed, on that day, followed his prior efforts to subvert the certification of the results. The article mentioned his phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State, in which he urged him to, quote, find votes. And the House voted 232 to 197 to, in favor of impeachment, even though no longer the president. Senate trial was short and to the point. And despite seven Republicans voting to convict President Trump, which would have invalidated him from ever being holding uh, being an office holder again, seven Republicans voted, but it fell short of the two-thirds, getting only 57 votes and more votes. 
Now, here's the question in all this, of course, is what is an insurrection? What specifically is an insurrection? Because that's really the heart and soul of all this. I don't really care what your opinion of January 6th is. There is a, an observable fact, which is that the political left refers to it as an insurrection, while the political right refers to it as a protest. Difference. Turning to the dictionary, you'll find that an insurrection, from dictionary.com, is an act or instance of rising in revolt, rebellion, or resistance against civil authority or an established government. That's one definition. From Merriam-Webster, you get an act or instance of revolting against a civil authority or an established government. And of course, because I always do this, that's why I have it, I went back to my 1991 dictionary, which defines insurrection as organized opposition to authority. As you can see, since 1991, that that definition has kind of changed. And I have some concerns with the current definition, which we found dictionary.com, which was an act of or instance of rising in revolt, rebellion, or resistance against civil authority or an established government. That is unfortunately an extraordinarily broad definition of insurrection. An act of resistance against civil authority? Consider what we've talked about in recent days, refusal to wear a mask if there is such, is such a mask mandate, again, could be considered an insurrection, given that definition. And, of course, the U.S. Code addresses this by saying, whoever incites, sets on foot, assists or engaged in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the law thereof, or gives aid and comfort thereto, shall be fined under this title, or imprisoned not more than 10 years, or both, shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. Which, of course, is the the crux of this whole thing, isn't it? In, in so many ways, what we're watching happening here isn't so much a, a constitutional argument as it is grasping at anything to get rid of Donald Trump. Now, the question you must ask yourself is, why so determined to do that? If you believe that your party, your side, is so right and in the majority, really concern yourself that much with somebody you say can't win? The fact is that one side fears that he will win, and because of that, they are pulling out every stop that they can to successfully prevent him from holding office. Now, this 14-3 thing, pardon the phrase to 14-3, has some historical evidence supporting it. In the immediate aftermath of the American Civil War, a guy by the name of Alexander Stevens, who we've talked about in the past on this show. Alexander Stevens is from Georgia. And in fact, where I lived in Georgia, called Stevens County, Georgia, Tacoa, Georgia, very beautiful area. It's probably my favorite part of Georgia. Stevens was from that area. 
he was a moderate, but very pro-Southern, very pro-slavery politician from Georgia. He was also very, very small. Get that from the picture there. He's very small, very tiny, very frail. During the American Civil War, he was elected as the vice president of the Confederacy. Now, as a part of that, he gave a speech that's very famous. Anytime somebody wants to argue with me about what caused the Civil War, I just go immediately to Alexander Stevens' speech. It's called the Cornerstone Speech. You can read it for yourself. It makes it clear that the purpose and reason for the American Civil War was one thing and one thing only, slavery, all it was. Alexander Stevens, after the war, decided to, well, run for the United States Senate in the state of Georgia. And in 1866, the state of Georgia elected him to the Senate of the United States. But Congress possessed that power, and they did so. They used to allow him to see. Initially, they told him, you cannot be senator. But back to that definition again, actual verbiage of the 14th third, look at that last sentence. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. And in the case of Alexander Stevens, did so. A few years later, in 1872, Congress would pass an act known as the Amnesty Act, 1872. And I'm not going to read it to you because it's a little bit wordy. But in essence, unless you were a Confederate politician in the, in the government or a military officer, read Robert E. Lee, you were forgiven. And the by this act, this Amnesty Act of 1872, the punishments of Article of, of Amendment 14, Section 3, were automatically removed. What is not clear from this, however, is whether or not, say this politely, it's permanent. You can read this act in such a way that unless you were as part of the, the unless you had been a senator, a representative of those two Congresses, 36th and 37th, or an officer in the Judicial, Military, Naval Service of the United States, at a department for measure, unless you had been one of those and had participated in a, in a rebellion, an insurrection, Section 3 doesn't apply. And this came into act in 1918 when a guy by the name of Victor Berger, who was a socialist, he was a firebrand socialist, ran for Congress from Wisconsin. He had been indicted in 1918 under the Espionage Act because he had written several articles about why World War I, the war, as they called it, was a, was a bad idea. He opposed the involvement of the United States in World War I. He was actually convicted under that act in 1919, but had been elected to Congress in 1918 by the state of Wisconsin. Congress invoked Article four, Amendment 14, Article Section 3 and refused to seat him. 
This was intriguing because as they threw him out, it went back to a special election in Wisconsin where they reelected Victor L. Berger to the Congress of the United States in his district. Congress again refused to seat him. And ultimately, the question before the courts became whether or not that 1872 act should be considered. In other words, under the terms of the Amnesty Act, he was not a member of the 36th or 37th Congress. So since he wasn't any of those other things, how can you keep him out? And it became a moot point when he eventually lost a race for the House, but and then the Supreme Court overturned his conviction because, as it turns out, that act was nonsensical. But since then, it's only been invoked one time. Want to take a guess when it was invoked? That's right, after January 6th. A congresswoman of some notoriety, Marjorie Taylor Greene, was accused of having violated Amendment 14, Section 3, and when she was running for re-election, the state of Georgia, some people tried to keep her out of office, saying she was ineligible. Now, the upshot of all of this is, of course, it was determined by those who determined these things, courts, that, in fact, she had not violated that act. And so she had not violated the terms of, of the amendment. So it kind of went out the window, and we never really got a, a decision on that process. That's it. Those are the only two times it's ever been in, in, invoked. And yet, in both cases, one, they ignored the Amnesty Act. One, they decided before it could even got to that point that, there you go. A couple of things to keep in mind here is that neither the 14th, Amendment Section 3, nor the Amnesty Act, apply to a normal citizen, someone who is not part of the government. did get into an interesting conversation yesterday about whether or not it applies to the military. That's going to have to wait for another day. So as we accuse Trump, as the Atlantic has and as others have, we have some questions. The first of which is, okay, let's say for the sake of argument, and that's all it is, the sake of argument, that, in fact, we're going to say that Trump is ineligible under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. How do we go about that? First off, there has to be evidence that he engaged in this activity, right? Go back to that definition that he engaged in that stuff. Somehow, someone has to bring that legal challenge, and that is unclear who that is. Is it a private individual? Does, does Roderick Cook from California file a legal challenge saying that Donald Trump is ineligible? He wouldn't, but I'm just using him as an example because I don't want to pick on anybody else. Does the government file that charge? It has to be a credible claim that he had engaged in an insurrection or rebellion and, or had given aid and comfort to its enemies. This is important. These are important words, and I need you to keep these words in mind. Comfort to its enemies. This could be in the form of documentation, witnesses, whatever. But who's going to do that? That's the question. There's got to be some proof and some evidence of this. It could be filed in a federal court. It could be filed in a state court, which is what happened with Marjorie Taylor Greene. 
The court then has to determine whether that evidence meets the criteria established by the 14th Amendment. This is when the court's interpretation of what constitutes an insurrection, a rebellion, or giving aid and comfort, would it, it, that becomes critical. What is this thing? If You might say to yourself, well, everybody knows it's like art, you know, it's like pornography. I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. What exactly is an insurrection? And I know what you're saying in your head, but stay with me, because something you're not thinking about yet. Then there has to be a potential congressional role in all of this. While the judiciary plays its role, Congress could, as they did with Berger, simply say, no, we're not seeing him. He's in violation of 14.3. Problem with that, of course, is then counter lawsuit is, well, what about, what about the Amnesty Act? I wasn't a member. Neither was of the 36th or 37th Congress, although I was a president. So that could be there. And then there has to be an outcome. If it's determined that the office seeker did, in fact, engage in the activities, they could be borrowed from holding the office, or they could be disqualified. They could be removed. You need to keep in mind, though, that this would be a significant, and well, it's not just a relatively rare occurrence. It's happened basically once in our entire history. Even Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy was ultimately ceded to his Senate seat from Georgia. The Congress and the judiciary in making this decision would face incredible, incredible discussions. It's more than just a legal argument. It becomes a political argument. And that's where the problem lies, doesn't it? Once the president, and we're speaking of President Trump, would be determined to be ineligible for office, you've opened up a political can of worms that you might not ever be you might not ever be able to close it again. I submit to you again, we've had more impeachments in the last twenty five years than we had in the previous two hundred. Why? Because tit for tat politics is the way we play games now. Even Nixon, were he alive because he has a pardon, could run again. What if somebody pardons Trump? This could be very easily seen as a political move rather than a constitutional necessity, which the Atlantic tries to make it out to be. Oh, this is constitutional. We have to follow this. Except that, again, maybe it doesn't mean what you think it means. And what would happen in the future? If we headed down this road, what, where does this end up 5, 10, 20 years from now? When our political opponents are out in the streets, we, de- we de- again, go back to that definition. What did I say that definition was? Remember, this definition really bothers me. Resistance against civil authority. That opens up so much doors. And if we say that Trump is guilty of that, well, I mean, it's going to go out on a limb here and say there aren't very many of us that wouldn't be guilty of that. And how do you define that? Is speeding resistance against a civil authority? What do I think? Well, 
to answer the question that was asked at the beginning, what is my assessment? I'll tell you some things. Some of you are not going to like what I say. Care. First off, I do not believe that it is clear, quote, as the article in the Atlantic states, that Trump led an insurrection against the United States. Sorry, I know that if you're on the left, you believe it was an insurrection. I do not agree. That said, I want you to consider my second conclusion, which is that I do not cons- I don't accept the premise that January 6th was a quote-unquote insurrection. Think about this for just a moment. What, old highlight, what is the United States? I know that sounds like a dumb question, but what is it? When I'm resistant to civil authority or to an established government, what is the United States? Is it the government or is it something else? Perhaps of, by, and for the people. And if it is that something else, how would January 6th be an insurrection against that? Follow what I'm saying here? What exactly was the intent of January 6th? Was the intent to overthrow the government or to change a government position? Given that, can we really say that January 6th was in fact A, an insurrection, or B, a rebellion against civil authority, since we are the civil authority of, by, and for the people. Were we trying to replace that with something else? Or were we trying to, in the minds of the folks who were there, reset that to what it was supposed to be? That's not an insurrection. I don't really care how you define it. It's not. The most important consideration for me about this article and why I reject the argument that 14.3 invalidates or it makes Trump ineligible is because it was not the intent of the men who wrote it. The intent of the men who wrote it was to keep Confederates, Confederate States of America, people who actually, I don't know, shot at Americans from ever regaining the power that they had had before the war to undo the war aims, the Union, from existing. You can't convince me that the people who protested on January 6th were trying to do that, nor did they shoot at anybody, nor did they seek to change that government or destroy that union. Since that is the case, since the intention of the the, the men who wrote the 14th Amendment and then turned around, what, four years later, so many of the same people wrote the Amnesty Act that wrote 14.3, wrote the Amnesty Act, including John Bingham of Ohio. So clearly, they had had either a change of heart or they understood the potential to use that as a political weapon. And using it as a political weapon would cause massive problems. It's the act of a tyrannical dictatorship to do that, which would cause liberty's lights to go out. 
which is exactly the argument that was being made against the Espionage Act in 1917. Do I think that the 14th Amendment makes Donald Trump ineligible? No, I don't. And if we're going to go down that road that it does, there's a whole lot of politicians who have expressed resistance to civil authority I want to consider that very, very carefully.